Hello world, this is SpartaCast. Hello and welcome to SpartaCast, brought to you by the Social and Psychological Research on Technology Interaction Effects Lab here at Michigan State University, the Sparty Lab. I'm director of the lab, Dr. Robbie Rattan, and your host of this podcast. This is episode number 18. We are coming of age. The podcast is now an adult. It can vote. It can drive in countries where you're not allowed to drive until you're 18. It is also the chemical element number for argon, a noble gas, which is appropriate because our guest today is quite noble, uh, especially with his wizard beard, Dr. Casey O'Donnell, an associate professor in my department, the Department of Media and Information at Michigan State University. Casey and I share many things in common in addition to the department and having an office on the same hallway. We come from STS, uh, Science, Technology, and Society. That's what we called it. He called it Science and Technology Studies. Similar idea. Uh, This was my undergrad major, but he followed it more deeply into his graduate studies. Um, The idea is that you can understand science and technology when you study them with science methods, scientific, social scientific methods. Um, And that's important because those things influence society and and society influences those things. Those things influence each other. Science, technology, and society are all intertwined. And Casey has applied this general idea to the study of video game production. He studied tabletop gaming, fellowship games, generally in serious games. That's, that's a where he teaches. He teaches game design at Michigan State. We have a a top-ranked program, um, thanks in part to him and the other great faculty in our department. So I'm very excited to have him on this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. I think it's relevant to students who might want to go into this field, to people working in games or technology industries who might be interested in the Serious Games Certificate, um, or to anyone who is interested in the effects of games beyond just entertainment. Um, So enjoy. All right. Hello to Casey O'Donnell, my friend and colleague. Welcome to the Sparty cast. Thank you, Robbie. It's it's, uh, it's a delight and uh, um, been looking forward to it. So yeah. So we started in the department around the same time uh, you joined in 2012, right? Mid 20, late 2012. Yep, you, I, I think you started six months before me, and you've had a sabbatical before me too. <laughs> oh, totally not fair. <laughs> but you got you got tenure before I did, um, and and we've we've been on the path together. Um, but you you do different research, though. We're both in the general area of games and technology. You're a production studies scholar. Can you tell me about that background? How how that happened? Sure. So that's probably the the, the strangest story um, because, uh, yeah, like it didn't really exist before me and a couple other people came along. And in part because like I came from, so my PhD is in science and technology studies uh, from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. And um, science and technology studies is kind of a r- small field um, in terms of people who um, you sort of called themselves that. And uh, 
so uh, science and technology studies is uh, a field of research where you have anthropologists, sociologists, historians, and other social scientists studying science and technology, uh, science production and technology production. And I wound up in a grad program. And at the time I was, you know, I had worked in games, but I don't just worked in traditional software. And I was like, what's, you know, I want to study software production. And, you know, um, there is, at the time, there was kind of a small field of software studies and, and other stuff like that going on. Um, and I kept trying to get into to places to do field work, like as an anthropologist at these companies to study the practice of making software. And nobody wanted to let me in. And I wound up having drinks with a, a friend of a friend and he was a game developer and we started capitulating about making games and the, just that process and how kind of chaotic it was and how nobody seemed to get any better at it over time. And he was like, well, maybe you can come to my company and study us. And, you know, three and a half years later, I finished my dissertation. And uh, so that was pretty cool. Um, and so my dissertation, you know, I would say like, uh, in science and technology studies, lab studies was this kind of big thing where, you know, an anthropologist or a sociologist would go hang out in a lab and study those people. And I just like tore that page out of the book. It was like, I'm going to go do that at a game company, which then became, uh, you know, and so there were other people um, like John Banks uh, and Afra Kerr um, who were doing research by going out and talking to game developers. There were folks doing what I would call um, research around games, looking at production, um, but they were doing it more from a political economy perspective and they weren't talking to developers. They were just sort of looking at the headlines and the news and like, oh, look, here's what's happening in the game industry and we're gonna study it from a political economic perspective. And I'm not dissing on any of that research, um, just that, you know, actually talking to developers was not a thing that they were doing or being a part of their those worlds. And so that's what produ production studies was, was uh, asking uh, social scientists uh, and uh, um, uh, humanities folks to be a part of the world of game development and to study it uh, critically and, and scholarly. And, uh, and that's you know, very... my dissertation, go ahead. That that's your dissertation, yeah. That and to me, that's it's so STS. Um, which to me, I, that was my undergrad major. As as you know, we share that in common. Also, you call it science and technology studies. We called it science, technology, and society. Um, but it's essentially the same field, and it um, it in, as a field has become very popular, from what I understand. When we were doing it in the early days, I I think it was quite new. But this we notion... were the land. We were the land of misfit toys, <laughs> and then people decided that they thought the misfit toys were kind of cool. Absolutely, because they, I guess, realized across the board, science and technology play such an important role in society, and there are mutual influences between all three of those um, pieces of this puzzle. And so, we should study science and technology as as an object in itself. And um, and so, you did that with game development. And then you transitioned um, into game development yourself, right? And, and so, yeah, can you take right. us it, it, it became It became um, my way 
so uh, in some ways it started while I was at Vicarious Visions um, because some people there introduced me to uh, homebrew game development around the Nintendo DS. And homebrew game development is, you know, people just hobbyists working at home. But to make games for the Nintendo DS back then, you, you had to break the law. You had to break the D Digital Millennium Copyright Act and buy a, a cartridge that was typically used for piracy, but you could be used to make games for it. And so I got back into making games because I wanted to, to study that community of um, people, ho hobbyists working in homebrew game development. And so I just started having fun with it. And um, you know, when I finished my PhD, uh, in 2008, like MSU was one of the very few programs that did games back then. Um, I mean, MSU was really one of very few kind of pioneering schools that were like, yeah, we do games. And like, no, I had to, I had to be a new media person, right? When I first finished, because you couldn't be a games person, right? It was still such a young field that nobody wanted to I mean, there were some places hiring games people, but they, you know, um, and so I was a new media scholar. Uh, I just happened to focus on games as games as an example of new media. And so, you know, but fast forward a few years after that, it became much more kosher. But one of the tensions for academics in to study games is what a lot of the programs want us to be able to teach game developers and studying games is very different than making games. And so for me, I, I get to I get to do both, um, and that's that's my way of also staying part of the world of game development. Because if I can bring STS and this kind of critical perspective um, into the the classroom of people making games, that's actually where change happens, and that, you know, like we can rethink what kinds of games are getting made. And so for me, it's just um, uh, Elizabeth Wilson is a uh, 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 STS person who studies uh, um, neuroscience. And she uses this phrase, uh, inhabiting well, and that you can't just be critical and then be, you know, sort of like write the book, be critical, chuck it out the window and walk away. The best way to be a part of that community is to stay. And be a part of it. So that's for me why I do production studies still, but I also make games. And typically, the games I'm making are related to what I'm studying over in production studies, such as friendship. Uh, friendship. Well, <laughs> yeah. So studying friendship had because I started making games about friendship um, and relationships. And friendship is this kind of foundational kind of relationship for all our relationships. Um, so uh, uh, my collaborator Hermione and I published a, a piece on dating games as well, right? Um, uh, designing dating games. We've been working on a, a paper on designing friendship games and what kinds of mechanics and processes go into those things. And we found that uh, it just kind of non-digital games are a lot better at getting people to talk to each other uh, than digital games are. And so we started making non-digital games, which then, you know, sort of got me thinking about the non-digital game industry. And so then I started looking at that from a production studies lens, in part because non-digital games look that the industry of non-digital games looks and feels a heck of a lot more like the video game industry circa 1990, 
right? Where, because you gotta actually have a physical thing, you know, games now, everything's digitally distributed, but you know, if you want a, a physical copy of your game, it's like, oh, well, is it gonna get produced in China? Or, you know, where you, you know, how are you gonna do this? And it's gonna show up on a giant pallet and it's gonna be yay big. And what are you gonna do with it? <laughs> so. Uh, so, so can you tell me a little bit about a specific uh, research topic in, in the friendship game space, maybe Fellowship of Fools, which we looked at a bit together or, or something else? Sure. I mean, I would, we should, we should definitely talk uh, about that because like um, uh, I, I have uh, a long history um, working on learning games and um, I'm, I'm not trained as somebody who finds out if things really work. Um, and, uh, so, you know, uh, so working with you is, a, was a chance for us to take something that was using these principles based on, uh, uh, social science research around friendship, right. Taking those principles and using those principles around friendship to design a game. And then we got to ask the question together, did it really work? Because for me, it's more like, well, I'm going to take the social science research around friendship, romance, um, uh, and make a game based on those ideas. And I, I tend to not ask the, did it work? <laughs> it's, it's more like taking that and uh, using those principles uh, in the design context. Yeah. So we, we ran a study, we had uh, undergrads come into a, a big room and then sit down and play a uh, game with a stranger, either your game or just a general icebreaker. I mean, I think we also had another tabletop game as a comparison. T table topics, which is uh, one of the uh, best-selling uh, conversation games on Amazon. Uh, we consistently found it was the worst at making people feel similar or have a potential friendship, liking each I, other. I, I, feel, I feel bad for them. Sure. This isn't published uh, yet or peer reviewed, um, but but we'll work on that eventually. Um, the icebreakers seem to do well in what we called the high depth condition, right? Um, but high depth for an icebreaker is still relatively low depth compared to Fellowship of Fools, which can you give us some examples of the types of cards you might get to discuss with your... Sure. So, I mean, Fellowship of Fools is like kind of turned into uh, a whole array of things. Um, uh, it started as wanting to make a dating game. Um, but what we found is that for the most part, you know, the reason that dating sucks so bad is because people are really bad at just having conversations and learning to be friends. And I don't know, the research shows that being friends is pretty important for romantic and sexual relationships and or sexual relationships. So, you know, <clears throat> yeah, friendship, important for dating. And since like it's hard and having conversations that um you know so friendship is often about sort of building rapport and disclosing self-disclosure and then reciprocal disclosure right you know if i disclose something to you i kind of expect you to give me something back and it's not a tit for tat but it's this cycle so so, so the so game is structured to facilitate that reciprocity yeah, and it's going to ask you questions um, <clears throat> that I think um, really get at more self-disclosure or more about who you are as a person. Um, 
the other thing that I, you know, Fellowship of Fools um, is designed um, really from the ground up as um, uh, a queer game, and it disguises itself very well. Um, but lots of uh, the things that we do in terms of um, the way things are phrased, um, you know, encourages people to not just answer the question, but kind of be self-reflective. So not just saying like, what's your family like, you know, cause that, that's a, that's a relatively high disclosure kind of question. It would say, you know, what does family mean to you? Which is a different kind of question. And um, lots of the questions are describe a time when, so describe a time when you felt hurt or describe a time you hurt somebody else. And like that, you know, like that, that's different than like, who's your best friend or who was your best friend growing up, which is a cool question, <clears throat> but different than, you know, that, you know, describe a time you, yeah. Or like describe a time your best friend moved away or, you know, like those aren't really the questions that are in the deck. Sure. I could, I could pull it up and, uh, do you want to draw a card? I can pull a card. Oh man, let's do it. Let's pull a card. Give me a high depth card. So high depth and fellowship of fools we found might've been a little too high depth between strangers, at least according to our data. Right. So, uh, so a less uh, uh, depth card from fellowship of fools. This is the same card. So this is uh, the, the Knight of wands card. And so the easy prompt is what is something you'd like to create, which is, Right. Okay, cool. I'd well, like to yeah. create a podcast. <laughs> right. I'd like to make some games. Uh, so, but the same card, the high depth question is where might you be wrongly informed? Ooh, <laughs> I might be wrongly informed about how to create a successful podcast. <laughs> hey, uh, I've, I've, I've started talking to my students about, we need to redefine what success means. Cause if it just means like number of views or number of downloads, like, I, you know, I don't know. Like I'd, I'd rather be super niche and have people who are like, you know what, this is like my favorite thing. And, and so yeah, sure. success and that, and is an abstract concept. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as academics, we're um, resilient to, repeated failure and rejection <laughs> hopefully and, and people not reading our stuff <laughs> exactly exactly um, but maybe someone will listen to this and get a chuckle and learn a bit about uh, what it means to not only be a production studies scholar who focuses on games and makes games but also just generally the type of work you can do in serious games so you would define this as as a serious game uh, focused more on just entertainment there's an intent here about friendship um, you said you worked with learning games. Of course, there, there are health games or political games. These are all kind of serious games, meaning beyond just entertainment, right? So, uh, of course, this is me forcing a segue to talk about serious <laughs> games. Right, which is so, like, I mean, which is a really hard um, thing, right? I mean, and I think a lot of people um, in game studies, like, there's this tension, right? Well, you know, you know, you know, even in friendship games, the question was like, well, what's not a friendship game? And I'm like, Monopoly, like Settlers of Catan when the, the uh, uh, robber moves around? Like, yeah, no, lots of games are not about friendship. Like that's the whole table flip thing, right? Antagonism games. Right, oh, I mean, Eve Online is not a friendship game. Um, anyway, but uh, 
right so but what game isn't serious you know so well oh there are serious games and then there are not serious games well and the so right it's a complicated and so i think when people talk about serious games what they're really trying to get at is games who games that are designed with the the hope for having impact right for having an effect which you know in and of itself is kind of a complicated thing because a lot of people who work in the entertainment game industry, like the idea that games have effects is kind of terrifying because then you might actually have to be responsible for your game. So it's just a game and it's never just a game, right? Yeah, so, so for me, serious games are about when people design things with the full intent and knowledge and ethical preparation for making things that they hope have impact. I mean, Robbie, why don't you, I mean, so like one of the complicated ones would be like empathy games. Some empathy games had, have been found to have negative effects, right? And they were designed with the hope and intent to have a good in, impact. Right. But in fact, they sometimes have negative impacts. Absolutely. Yeah. If you put yourself in someone's shoes and you don't want to be in those shoes, given the context, then that can actually strengthen or reinforce stereotypes about that type of person. We've seen that in lab studies. It's funny. You call lab studies when you go into someone's lab and study those people in the lab. <laughs> for, for me on the quant quantitative side, I, we call lab studies, you know, we bring people into our lab and we study them. But yeah, we bring people in, put them in VR. And if they're, they're in, um, you know, a different ethnicity and they're not in a comfortable context, it actually reinforces uh, negative implicit attitudes about those groups. Though um, most of the research shows that as long as you avoid those kind of contextual issues, uh, you know, mismatches, um, you, can, you can avoid those negative effects, but you have to learn, you have to study it, right? It takes, it takes some thinking. Yeah, so for me, that's, I think it's it's really, so serious games are like, you, you have to take seriously that, you know, on the one hand, I'm hoping to have this good impact, like, but you have to be careful and be responsible in the design and the testing and, right, so, you know, doing a more participatory approach to design where you're getting people involved earlier, whereas, you know, most entertainment games are, they're making a game that they want to make and they hope it's going to be successful, but, you know, and, and more and more game companies do user testing and user experience. And, you know, they look at what other people are doing and they use data models to see what keeps people engaged or whatever. They don't do a very good job if they're like, well, this game deals with mental health. Like, and well, one, they probably wouldn't say that, but like, you know, it would be different than you know going and working with mental health professionals and people who maybe struggle with the issues that are in the game. And that's for me a serious games is when you're really taking seriously the topics that you're engaging with and you're doing the homework. Like you're being serious about it, you're, which is just a little bit different in terms of valence. So, you know, do we want to talk about serious games at MSU? Yeah, exactly. Students who might want to come to our program, we've got a top 10 game design program, right? And then as a, as a complement to that, we have a serious games um, certificate and program. Can you tell us about the structure of those? those? 
Sure. Yeah, so our undergrad game development program is is not as focused on serious games, but because you have overlap between the faculty, they're going to get at least a taste of it, especially if they take my classes. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so we've got a, a, a we're in the top ten. We're the top ranked public institution in the United States for undergrad games, and we're in the top fifteen for our master's program as well. And so the serious game certificate is separate from the master's program, but many people that come through our master's program also get the serious game certificate. Um, so the serious game certificate is fully online. It's four classes. Um, and we got a lot of industry professionals who are, you know, people who make games in the entertainment world, but they, they want to learn more about how to, you know, think about those serious effects. And, uh, um, so as I said, it's a series of four courses. You know, you you learn some user research, you learn um, you, uh, UI UX, uh, but also how to do some of the research more like you do, probably not as in depth as what you do, Robbie. But you know, it's a it's an intro to kind of that. Um, yeah, just how to think about effects, uh, variables causing differences, and other variables, that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, how to you know. Uh, uh, use a cert, you know, so you uh, test your game and you ask people questions before and then you ask people questions after and like, you know, even just do that kind of user feedback. Like, what did, what did you like? What did you not like? You know, how, how could this be different? Were there parts of the game that made you uncomfortable or, you know, all of those things. So, um, yeah. but yeah, like I said, it's fully online and uh, it's a, it's a great way for, um, uh, you know, if people are curious about serious games, uh, it's, a, it's a great way to, to engage with that. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's really amazing. Our department, I mean, let's just pat ourselves on the back here. We have such a cool mix of topics and scholars. Uh, personally, I feel connected to many of the different areas, games and media research, media psychology, um, and I'm not a game developer, but Casey, you kind of straddle that boundary there, qualitative, quantitative. We've got a really interesting uh, kind of interdisciplinary identity that I don't see in any other communication colleges or human computer interaction depart uh, departments or programs, right? Like, is there anywhere else that does what we do? Like I mean, uh, you know, I mean, some people would say that there are, I mean, there are definitely connections, right, to lots of places that are either iSchools or, um, you know, but um, uh, I think, you know, particularly, I hate, you know, uh, lot, there are lots of people in uh, our department that have nothing to do with games, um, but I think one of, it, but I, I think that's a real strength, because, like, you know, we have folks from human-computer interaction, um, uh, you know, communication, uh, sociology, social psychology, like, it's, it's, fabulous but what happens is is i think we start to talk to each other and that changes the work that we all do right having this um these kinds of conversations right so you know um you know i just recently submitted a, a grant with uh, dave ewaldson you know and with some of his collaborators uh from alabama and right taking a game some a game that uh, I worked on and using that as a way to um, um, work with at-risk youth and seeing if we can get them to like 
think and act differently. And right, so that kind of thing won't happen. I mean, sometimes there are those collaborations, but they're cross-institution. And you know, pre-COVID, we could just walk down the hallway and have that conversation. And um, you know, it sometimes it happens over Zoom now, but you know, soon enough, I think those hallway conversations will happen. But I, it's much easier for me to you know get a hold of you and be like, Robbie, does my game actually work? <laughs> And, and then we can have that, that conversation um, versus, you know, if, it, if we were strictly games focused, we wouldn't have that. And, you know, yeah. something like the, the Quello Center where it's like, well, if we're curious about, you know, uh, uh, you know, policy implications around stuff that's going on in games, I could just walk in there or email people in my department and start mm -hmm. those conversations. So I think that's where we really do have Absolutely. strength. Absolutely. And just some some context there, Dave Eagleton, who you're submitting that proposal with is, is a prominent uh, media psychology scholar, started the Media Psychology Journal back in the day and um, is, is uh, communication oriented, like me, similar background, media kind of effects oriented. And so it's a great compliment and you're right. There's so many potential um, synergies that that are hard to find when you're just not at the water cooler or or even on zoom meetings but bantering before the before the meeting like that's that's a way to get that's how we came to this podcast recording it was kind of me saying hey i'm doing this thing on the side ish um and it would be great to have people connect uh so and, I, I, I like to, i like to talk i'll yeah. talk <laughs> Don't we all right? Like maybe this is this is a good way to get to know colleagues. Um, last question, Casey. Serious games to serious avatars. Of course, I have to bring it to avatars. So uh, you might you might remember the Proteus effect. This idea that avatars influence behavior. So that's pretty much um, a ser It's an effect. It's an effect beyond entertainment. You can intend for avatars to influence people to be more professional. I, I just uh, read a paper about how if you use an athletic avatar, um, they have a physio study where your heart rate is actually lower while you're doing the exercise. So you, and, but, and your perceived exertion is lower um, compared to a kind of less athletic avatar. So you can really influence behavior and outcomes through games and in particular through avatars. What do you think about this, this domain avatar effect? So uh, I'm also gonna, uh, uh, for a moment, remind Robbie that when he went on sabbatical, I had to teach his class on oh, yes, avatars. You did. We never, so, we never circled back on that. So this is a good opportunity. Go ahead. Yeah. So, um, yeah, right. Like, um, oh, I mean, I, I totally believe it. Right. You know, but by the same token, right. Like if, if, if avatars can have positive effects, they can have negative effects. And that means you just got to take it seriously. So game developers out there, when we say we want more diverse avatars, the reason is, is because it matters. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, and diversity, choice, control over the avatars people use. Um, I mean, avatars, go ahead. Not enough avatars have purple hair, man. And uh, like especially on the, uh, on, on the, uh, ostensibly male like avatars is there a game that lets me be this and the answer is mostly no um and and, uh, and then like forget game what about when i'm in my zoom meetings and i want to use an avatar instead of my face because i want a little bit more privacy um, a little bit more control over my appearance 
a little bit more occlusion of things I don't want people to see. Like avatars well, are going to be common. Go ahead. Yeah. So I'm going to stop my video for a second so we can see the image that I have when my video is off. <laughs> uh for you listeners out there it's a it's a still image of <laughs> maybe not the most flattering but a very funny photo of casey kind of mid-sentence surprised uh maybe a bit disturbed i don't know what's going on what, what were you reacting to i have a uh online asynchronous class uh that i teach games and society which is I, I love that class. It took uh, from 2012 uh, until the fall of 2020 for me to be able to teach that class. But of course, because it was fall 2020, we were in full-blown COVID. So I spent my entire summer recording all of these videos. And so I have all these great action shots of me because I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's the class that I've always wanted to teach, right? Like it is uh, STS meets games and uh, and so I was super excited. So of course I get super passionate, which means that I like mid sentence, I'm like, <laughs> and you use that. That's great. That's great. It's funny because, um, I associate you with very cool photo shoots, like green screen background, holding game controllers, like they're in, in a gun holster and you're in the mid, uh, not the Midwest, the wild west. Um, and so that's a funny contrast there. I mean, uh, I, I think I think I have a hard time not being a bit of a character. Um, and my students, uh, the particularly for three thirty nine, they're like, they feel like uh, the lectures, right? The videos that they have to watch, uh, they're like, it feels like a fireside chat with grandpa. And I'm like, oh, I'm old now. Like, I mean, I guess I am old, but like, I mean, the beard doesn't help. It's but, the wizard um, beard, yeah, totally. Um, but. That's, I mean, it's it's a great phrase uh, that you're a bit of a character, because right, it, that is that is an avatar, right? You you are a character. You could be a caricature of the character that that you want to present, or of yourself, of your identity. Um, so I think you play very well with this notion of self representation, uh, and I think you have fun with it. Well, I mean, um, so. Uh, one of the things that I, I tell my students, right, is that the person they see either in front of a camera or in front of the classroom really isn't me. Uh, I mean, it is, right? Just like avatars. Avatars are part us, part not us. Like, but it's a presentation, you know? I'm, I'm a total introvert. And like, generally speaking, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm, passionate about many things and I love to talk and chat but you throw me in a room full of people I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the people I know and be like hey can we talk and like this is weird <laughs> uh you know so but I I mean come on like once once I started watching YouTubers I was like oh like the way I can get students engaged is to also be that person I mean you have that too in your classroom right like think about you as teacher, it is this avatar. Absolutely. And it turns the definition that we use of avatar on its head a little bit, because I always emphasize at some point, there has to be a distinction between the self and the avatar. The avatar is a self representation. So it can't be the avatar itself. And, and so a, a picture of me, that can be an avatar because it's not me. But, um, but if you're looking at my body, that in theory shouldn't be the avatar. 
But in some ways, if I'm in character, it's not the self. Am I representing myself? Maybe I'm representing my ideal, my overt, my extroverted self. Um, but then that's a part of the self. So at some level, it brings up the deep philosophical question of what is the self anyway? Is there even a true self? Certainly. Um, and th this is all in your class, man. It's there. It's there. Yeah. Descartes' Error, the neuroscience oriented book from Antonio Damasio basically says, you know, this mind body duality is false. And so there are many selves that are connected to our body and our, and our neurological system. And yeah. Yeah. See, I, I really like uh, uh, Deleuze and Guattari's uh, work. Uh, there's a, so from uh, the book, A uh, Thousand Plateaus, there's a chapter uh, called uh, One or Silver Wolves. And it's one of my favorite because it, it's the idea that I am pack. Like I am not just one wolf, right? Like, and that we are all composed of pack. And um, so. And it's hard to play alpha all the time. And there is no alpha, right? Like you, you, you know that like all that research was totally flawed research because they yeah. were studying like, yeah. So uh, yes, there is no alpha there. Uh, there is only like is really mo about moments of moments of confidence yeah and who's taking care of what like it's i mean real pack is family my internal family in my head represented by different avatars at different times whoa this conversation went super super deep and philosophical at the end here but um but i think it was informative i think students who are interested in our program and, and working with you casey uh will hopefully feel more comfortable reaching out to you about your research and your classes um so i love i love talking i will talk about this stuff any day anytime like my students you know that they're like you're super passionate about this i'm like yeah why would i why would i do this why would i choose this life if i wasn't passionate about it so absolutely absolutely and, and students in the industry too people who are working out there in game design and development or avatar design and development vr for the workplace um, our serious game certificate is very relevant and uh, casey can take you through that awesome four class pedagogical experience thank you so much for listening if you made it this far thank you casey for being with us thank you robbie okay that was our interview with Dr. Casey O'Donnell. I hope you enjoyed it. Isn't he nice? I like him. We've been friends. I remember interviewing him uh, because I had been in the department for a few months before he was interviewed. And I remember thinking, wow, I'd love to be this person's colleague. We can be friends. And it happened. And we've, we've kept a good working professional and friendly relationship for the past nine years. Wow, time flies. And so um, so I, I hope you can see why through that episode, he's very easy to get along with. He's a critical thinker. He's very intelligent, of course, um, and he's well-versed in these topics of research. So yeah, um, I, I'm particularly struck there by the end of our conversation and how we can reconsider the ways we think about avatars and character and self-presentation. Of course, that's, <laughs> that's what a critical uh, qualitative scholar does for me is to ha have me think about things in new ways, which is great. It's very useful. It's a testament to that idea that we were promoting about 
interdisciplinarity and how it's difficult to achieve. It takes a lot of effort to step across the boundaries, the hallway, but, but when you're literally stepping across a hallway, it's much easier than when you have to step across a campus um, or just a building even. And so I think our department is well suited for that. And I'm grateful to have colleagues like Casey, uh, especially because they seem to be willing to join this podcast. And I'm even more grateful to you for listening, not just my mom, um, but to all the people who listen to this podcast. Of course, my mom's feedback is useful. It's good to have uh, parents and family members and friends who are who are willing to invest in your publicly oriented endeavors. My mom's been editing my papers ever since, uh, well, probably <laughs> since I could write, uh, but even into my career as a professor, this is a bit of a tangent, uh, but you know, I thought I'd mention her because she has been giving me good feedback on these podcasts. Thanks, mom. Um, and thanks to everyone. Thanks to my awesome team, George McNeil and Taylor Halterman for helping to produce this podcast. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends, like, follow, subscribe. I mean, really just hit subscribe. It's not that hard. It's just one button. Everyone tells you to do it. So you probably ignore it. You're not even hearing these words right now. But if you hit subscribe, then our little number goes up and that makes us feel good about ourselves. It also increases the chances that we will be able to continue this endeavor into the future because we can get sponsors who think that they will have an audience. And hopefully they will because you've subscribed. Chicken or the egg. Anyway... Hope to see you next time where we'll be discussing something very interesting, totally, totally worth your time, but I have no idea what it's going to be at this moment. Summertime, it's hard to schedule people, but we will have something for you. So take care and have a good rest of your week. Thank you for tuning into SpartyCast. Goodbye, world.